Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. And today we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Matthew, verses 1 through 14. We've been following Matthew's Gospel lately, and we have a series of parables that um, basically are thematic, that they all kind of reflect the same fundamental teaching, but they all have pieces and parts to them which are a little bit different, which kind of flesh out the picture for us. And so today it's going to be the same thing. Jesus is still now. He's talking to the chief priests and the elders of the people. He's been doing this for the last, for the last two parables or three parables. And he's gotten them, and, th- and this all flows from that confrontation that they had over who was John the Baptist and, uh, you know, did his mission come from God or was it a purely human mission? They didn't dare answer because if they say it came from God, then everyone was, why didn't you follow him? If they say it came, was a human endeavor, then they anger the crowds who were very devoted to him and saw him as a prophet. So they chose to say nothing. And so Jesus then leads them into these parables in which they have to give the right answer when that answer is always self-condemnatory. And yet they're put in front of the crowd in a spot where the absurdity of their positions would be glaring uh, to the public if they answered according to the way that they practiced and according to the way that they actually thought. So he is here again now with the chief priests and the elders of the people. And then he tells them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a feast for his son's wedding. Now this, again, in a way, is an Old Testament theme. It comes to us once again out of Isaiah and the idea of the feast on the holy mountain, which is the day of the Lord, which is the coming of the Messiah, which is the kind of the recapitulation of everything in, in the Creator. And uh, it comes to us, of course, from Isaiah, the 25th chapter of Isaiah. It starts out on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will prepare for all his people a banquet of rich food, a banquet of fried wines, of rich and juicy food, of strained wines on this mountain, and so forth. Okay, so Jesus now picks up this idea of a banquet, this idea of plenty this idea of, uh, of that which is, which is pleasant and enjoyable and fulfilling. And he says, so it's, he gave a feast for his son's wedding. Now, obviously, this is set up, Jesus has this set up right away for the father being the king and himself being the son. And he obviously is talking about images of the messianic age, that it is the son of the living God who is going to come and be the Messiah. And so he sent out his servants to call those who had been invited. Who was invited? The ones who were invited were the children of the Old Covenant. And who were the servants who were sent out to invite them? Were the prophets. So we see this set up once again, that the initial, the elect, the first called, were the, the children of Abraham, were, were the Hebrew people. And, uh, and then... Um, As they began to fall away, as they stumble over and over again, new messengers are sent. Here, they're the servants of the king going out into the highways and inviting people. And so the chosen ones are the first ones invited, and they're invited through the emissary, through God's emissaries, the prophets. 
And so he sent to call those who had been invited, but they would not come. So in other words, you have been invited into this banquet of the Lord, but you have chosen not to come. You have, you have chosen the ways of the world in which you live. So next he sent some more servants. Tell those who have been invited, he said, that I have my banquets all prepared, my oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding. So the prophets continue, and we know they continue all the way down into the first century AD. They continue it all the way down into the life of John the Baptist. So the prophets come all the way through the story of Israel's infidelity. It is paralleled by the stories of the Lord's servants inviting them to return to the banquet. But the parable says they were not interested. And one went off to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, maltreated them, and even killed them. People's everyday lives became so much more important to them than the day of the Lord. And so they simply ignored the covenant, and they went off about their business. But there were those who the challenge to their way of life made, it, made them angry, and so they maltreated and even killed the prophets. The king, he said, was furious. The Lord was furious. God was furious over his rejection by the people of Israel. And so he dispatched his troops and destroyed those murderers and burnt their towns. There's a real question here. Does this really, is this kind of maybe a later insertion into the gospel? Because it's only about 40 years later that Jerusalem is leveled to the ground and the temple burned. And then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited proved to be unworthy. And so now, this is once again the image of the, of, of the mission to the Gentiles. So basically, we have called the chosen people. They have rejected me. Now go out into the Gentile world. Go to the crossroads in the towns and invite everyone you can find to the wedding. And so now it's kind of like you all come. It's for everybody. It's uh, anybody, everybody is invited now, not just the Hebrews. So these servants went out on the roads and collected together everyone they could find. So who are the servants now? Of course, the servants now are his disciples, are the apostles. They are to go out to all the world and to invite everyone into the banquet, the messianic banquet of the Lord. And we know that they did that. We know that Philip went down into, uh, into Arabia. We know that uh, Andrew went to Armenia. Thomas went to India. Possibly James uh, went to Spain um, and so forth. And so they scattered and to invite everyone to the wedding. So these servants went out onto the roads and they collected everyone they could find, bad and good alike and the wedding hall was filled with guests. You know, this is something that we have to deal with and something we don't want to deal with. We want the purity of ancient Israel. We want the fact we're exclusive. We want the fact somehow or other that we're, you know, that the church is all the good guys. No, it's not. Jesus has invited everyone, not just the holy. And so we share this church, this assembly, this community, this place with the good and the bad alike.
and the wedding hall then was filled with guests. The church is filled with people, some of them saints, some of them sinners, some of them a little bit of both. But nevertheless, we bear the burden of the sinfulness of our people. There's a wonderful essay by, um, by Joseph Ratzinger from the early 60s when he quotes a 13th century French bishop, uh, William of Alverne, and his radical and dramatic condemnation of the sinfulness of the church. And, uh, and where he, he, he calls, you know, he calls her the whore of Babylon and so forth. And then goes on to say, but because of these sinners, you know, those who do not believe condemn us because they refuse to see the good, they only see the bad and so forth. And, uh, and Father Ratzinger asks the question, is this kind of honesty about the church something that we are no longer privy to? And if we do not mention it, is, because, is it because we are so much better than we were before, or is it because we no longer really care for the church? He said, is it a sign of a love grown cold? We have to remember that even from the gospel itself, the good and the bad alike, we are all together in this as one. When the king came in and looked at the guests, he noticed one who was not wearing a wedding garment. And he said to him, how did you get in here, my friend, without a wedding garment? And the man was silent. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him out into the outer darkness, where there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Interesting. First of all, we know that this is not a logical progression. If they gather them all out to the roads and, and the highways and the byways, when were they going to go home and put on their wedding garments? So obviously it's not about how they were dressed. This is again another, another metaphor that the, the unpreparedness and the unreadiness and the sloppy dress of one of the members who were brought into the banquet is a sign, of course, of those who will not believe, those who do not in some way accept the living faith, those who do not live it, and so forth. So that even in this banquet of the good and the bad, there are those who are going to persist in the bad. And that the master will therefore come to them and said, how did you get in here? Why did you come in here? And you have no intention of being here. You have no intention of being part of us. And so he has them thrown into the outer darkness, into the, where there is the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. Another allusion within the gospel to the existence of hell. And so whatever that is and whatever it means and whoever goes there, anyone who wants to deny that it is part of the New Testament is simply denying part of the New Testament because there it is. And so basically then, where, where do we end up in all of this? Where are we with all of this? The parable is clear. Israel has been called. It has been the bride of God. It, she, he has led her in the desert. He has covered her. He has protected her. She has become unfaithful to him. Certainly in the prophecies of Hosea, we see, you know, I want you to model Israel. I want you to go out and to marry a prostitute. And so that Israel can see who they are in relationship to me. And then the story of Hosea unfolds. And then God uses that illusion over and over again. And now he comes in the New Testament. He gets into a debate with the chief priests and the elders. 
Um, they tried to size, sidestep answering the questions so that they could come out on top of the argument, and so he pushes them into the parables where they have to choose a side, and each side is self-condemnatory. Um, that they choose must be self-condemnatory, so, or otherwise they rile up the crowds, and Jesus then makes his point. But the point to us is interesting, too. We could read this parable all the way up to where that they went out and they, they collected together everyone they could find. We could say that and leave it at that. And then we could get into this business that somehow or other God is the only one who chooses, that God is the total, complete, and sole determiner of our destiny. In other words, we could walk around saying, I have been saved. Well, we can't do that because the only one who knows if we're saved or not is the living God. And then, in order to, in order to then clarify and lead us away from that position, he then brings in the good and the bad alike come in and then one who is without a wedding garment. So one had to respond to this invitation to the banquet of the Lord. And one did not respond, and so they were thrown out. This doesn't, this God did not go through the crowd and say, all right, you're good, you're bad, you're bad, I choose you, I throw you away, all of that. He didn't do that. He took everyone in. But then the ones who refused to be responsive to the invitation, those are the ones he threw out of the banquet. Now, this leads us into a very important, a very important component of our Catholic belief. And that is the necessary of what we call the necessary of good works. And we call it also the acquisition of merit. And those words become flashpoints in our relationship with the Reformed traditions. Because in the Reformed traditions, whatever they have evolved into in the modern age is very complex. But certainly in their original form, they believed that the human person could do nothing, contribute nothing toward their salvation. Everything, everything came only from God and so that they were able to say, and uh, that every person was predestined. While they did not at first say predestined to hell, but only to heaven, eventually the logical consequence was also the predestination to hell. In other words, before the creation of the world, before the very creation of the world, God determined who would be saved and who would be damned. And that it had nothing to do with our free will, it had nothing to do with our responsiveness to grace, it had nothing to do with how we lived our lives. It had only to do with the arbitrary, the whimsical will of God. But that's not what we believe, and that's not what the scripture is telling us right here. The scripture is telling us right here, God's invitation is benevolent and universal. We read in 2 Timothy, God desires the salvation of all men. We know that his, his will is benevolent. And we know, however, that he asks something of us in return. There is no such thing as a love relationship which has no reciprocity to it. There is no such thing, you know, I will always eternally love you, and then you go off and do whatever you want and ignore me completely, and I'll always just feel that way. That, 
that doesn't make sense to us humanly, it doesn't make sense to us theologically, that the idea of grace is relational. And this is the fundamental thing. This is why we go back, for instance, even in kind of exposing the foundations of our faith, we go back to the creation story, we go back to the Trinitarian imagery of the creation story, where we see the closeness of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that they, they are so close that, that, that Genesis calls them all God. And so they are one, the, this, the Spirit, the Word, and the Father. They are all one. And that they are one because of their relationality, because the love, the infinite love of each person is so infinite and so completely and so absorbing that it creates them into one. And we, therefore, are created in their image and likeness. We are created for the sake of relationality with God and with one another. And it is through that process that we find salvation. And in no process of relationship do we find it only only one way, no matter how disproportionate, no matter how, how inexhaustible is the love of God and how meager and, and, and sad is our own capacity, we must respond. How did you get in here, my friend, without a wedding garment? How did you get in here, my friend, without responding in spirit to the invitation? You walked in but you never even respected or honored the invitation because you came in basically like a slob in the midst of what was a place where people were supposed to move themselves toward a greater vision of who they were, a greater sense of how they belonged. And the man was just completely incapable of responding and said he was just silent. And so what can you say? What can the chief priests and the elders say to Jesus when he tells them the story? What can they say? They remain silent. They have nothing. It's very clear what, what he's talking about. You were all invited to the banquet, and look what you have done. You have rejected, not just rejected the invitation to the banquet, you have rejected the one in whose honor it is held. That when the sun comes, when the Messiah comes, you just blow it off. You just go off about your daily business because after all, my daily business is more important to me than my salvation. My daily business is more important to me than salvation of my soul. The way of my life as we have it right now is more important to me than the idea of eternal life. And so even politically, I am going to vote against the church. I am going to vote against Catholic morality because I find it more convenient in my world. Well, there you are. You're at the wedding banquet and you don't have your garment on. You have done nothing in order to be responsive to the love that God has shown you. This is how harsh this is. And while we have not, we have lost the designation of chief priests and elders of the people, we have not lost their spirit in the modern world. We have all of those who carry our name and live unfaithfully to the gospel. We have all of those who carry our name and yet at the same time disdain the whole presence of the living God, the presence of his son among us, the presence of his son in our lives, in our sacraments, in our church, in our world. 
disdain the living God in the very fiber of creation itself, disdain it all and do whatever is most convenient. I'm going off to my business. I'm going off to, where else are they going? I'm going off to uh, attend to, to my farm and, uh, and, and, or I'm just simply not interested. We cannot say that we do not have to respond to grace to be saved. How unscriptural that is. How contrary to the Bible. How contrary to Revelation. And so if we use the vocabulary of good works and merit, what are we saying? As far as good works are concerned, we're saying that we in our lives respond to the love God has for us in grace. We respond to that by obeying him. John says that, if you love him, you'll keep his commandments. We obey him, that's how we love him. We love our neighbor, we do what we're supposed to do. We do the spiritual works of mercy, we do the corporal works of mercy. We take care of our people, we take care of our families, we do the very best we can to bring some kind of sanity into the world. We do the very best we can in the public forum to be representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do all of these things, and what we mean by merit is it means that we respond, and what do we, gain, what do we gain out of that? And we know this intuitively. If we respond to one who loves us in love, we are more open to that other person's love than we would be if we did not. If we perform good works, we are more capable of receiving the vastness of God's love into our lives. This is part of a relationship. We grow from being loved. We know that, for instance, even in the raising of children, getting away from how you do it, whether you spank or don't spank, or yell or don't yell, or whatever you do in your family. If the child is convinced that no matter what, the parent loves them, and this is the terror of the wrong kind of punishment for a child, is that it's not so much the physical hurt at all. It's the fear of abandonment and a fear that I am no longer loved, I am no longer safe, I am no longer secure. And we want to talk about methodology, talk about it all day. That's the issue. And it's the same way in our relationship with God. We misbehave. We do, and all men are sinners. And John says, if you say you're not, you're a liar. We all are. And yet, at the same time, that God may well allow us to suffer punishment in our lives from that, but that doesn't mean that we lose his love. It means we have to come back. It means we have to reach out. It means we have to trust. It means we have to put on our wedding garments again. And we have to be responsive to the love of our neighbor and the love of God that is before us. That we call good works. And merit we call the increase of our capacity to receive God's love because we act in such a way that we are responsive to his love. And therefore our capacity to receive it increases. That's what it means. And anyone who denies that denies scripture. 
And anyone who denies that denies human experience because that's the way we live. And that's the way God deals with us. And that's why the man fell silent. He couldn't say, well, you called me, you invited me, because he knew, he knew, yes, you did. And I didn't even respond. I didn't even do what you asked. I didn't even respect your invitation. I didn't even respect your call. This is why, for instance, in the great crisis of the Reformation, the one thing, and this had to do with Luther's personality, is he, had, he was scrupulous and he, he despaired, he despaired of God's love for him. How could you despair of infinite love? Because he couldn't justify himself. Nor can any of us. Nor can any of us. And so he demanded clarity, certitude. The Catholic Church says we cannot have certitude. This whole idea, well, if God is good, everybody goes to heaven. That's non-scriptural. That's contrary to revelation. That's not what God said. And if you want to say that, fine. But it doesn't mean anything because it comes from emptiness. It comes from vacuity. We can have confidence. Who would not be confident in the infinite love of God? What child is not ultimately confident that even if they get punished, their parents still loves them? They might have a temporary crisis of confidence, but it doesn't go away if the parent truly does love them. And so our whole experience is, all right, I have, I have fractured this relationship with God through my sinfulness. But I do not despair of the fact I am confident that he loves me. And I am confident that if he loves me, he will desire me to be with him forever in heaven. But I do have to keep responding so that I don't break that relationship and I don't make it impossible for his love to enter into my life. It's a phenomenal parable and an incredibly important parable for the modern world. You must respond. Each of us must respond to the love of God. In that is our salvation. And if we call that response good works and the increase of our capacity to receive his love merit, so be it. Those are historical terminology. But the dynamic is something that is fundamentally biblical and fundamentally human. And we ourselves can live with a certain peace no matter what transpires in our life. And we can look at our world in a different sort of way, no matter what goes on around us, and realize we have an obligation to live the faith, live it actively and well in the depths of our hearts and in the midst of our people. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Yeah.